All right, good morning. Would you uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to Daniel chapter 8, and uh, would you pray with me as we turn to, to God's Word this morning? Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we do just thank you for your Word. We thank you um, for the gift uh, that your Word is to us, that it speaks to us, that it gives us uh, life. Um, and Lord, we pray that your Spirit would would move among us as we, we look to your word, uh, that we would, we would see Christ in your word and, and we would uh, be transformed by the renewing of, of our mind this morning. So we pray that in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning, uh, if you're taking notes, is The God of Troubled Times, which might be a, a bit of a redundant phrase. We could probably just as easily say the God of time, um, because times are troubled. The New Testament is, is full of, of warnings that we, we ought to expect trouble, right? Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, all of these men tell us that trouble and, and suffering is not a matter of if, but a matter of, of when. And so often we're, we're surprised when the very thing that we've been told is going to come, comes. And as a result, when we suffer, we're hit with essentially two things, the suffering itself and then the suffering over the suffering. Why is this happening to me? In my last year of university, I took an English lit course on modernism, and it was actually, um, it was pretty interesting. And it, it looked at, at, writers from the early 20th century uh, and how they were shaped by their experiences in the First World War. And what you have is in this, this generation of, of writers, post-World War I, um, they're shaped by what they've seen in the war. And they, they start writing stories and plays that, that reject the idea that the universe could possibly have some sort of cohesive Meaning, or what you might call a meta narrative, a grand unifying story to the universe. This generation was was marked by the loss of a sense of life having purpose that's found outside of the self. Now, one of the plays that we studied in this class really demonstrates this. It's a play called Waiting for Godot. Uh, You probably haven't seen it uh, because it really hasn't had much of a life after it first came out. Uh, the play is, is set in, in two acts. There are no scene changes. The entire play is essentially two characters waiting beside a dead tree for someone named Godot. Uh, there's a suggestion that, that once this character arrives, things will make sense. But, but in the end of the play, spoiler here, Godot never arrives. This character never arrives, and it's never really explained who he is or why our characters are even waiting for him. One early uh, review of the play wrote that it's a play in which nothing happens twice. Another review, borrowing a line from the play, summed up the plot. Nothing happens, nobody comes, nobody goes, it's awful. But you see, the thing is, for Samuel Beckett, who wrote this play, and the other modernists, a play like this or a story like this is really an argument about the nature of life. Nothing happens, nobody comes, nobody goes, and it's ultimately awful. Godot or whoever or whatever we might be waiting for will never arrive, and, 
Nothing in life ultimately makes sense, including suffering. And so you have this, this generation of, of artists who looked at the incredible suffering of the First World War that was produced by humanity, and the response was to reject the possibility that, that God could have had a hand in it. And in rejecting that, they also reject the possibility of meaning. So, so here's a key question for us to look at as we consider Daniel 8. How do you persist in, in faith and in obedience to God when you live under constant pressure and suffering and it seems that there's no end in sight? How can you persist in faith through troubled times? Now, the book of Daniel is really a book of two halves. The first half is, is filled with stories of, of Daniel and his friends and their, their brave testimonies of remaining faithful it's a story of, of these kings, each in turn, who, who try to destroy the people of God. And, and it's a story of Daniel's testimony to the faithfulness of God. Now, last week, we turned the page into the second half of the book, and we moved into a realm that's a fair bit less familiar to us. Right? It's no longer a history book telling us the stories of uh, our Sunday school, but it's more like a book of nightmares at times, of dreams and visions of, of beasts. The second half of the book of Daniel is an indication to us of a world that exists beyond what our eyes can see. The first half tells us the story of history. The, the second half, which comes to us in these dreams and visions, takes us behind history. Sinclair Ferguson, on, on the structure of the book, said this, he He said, it's as though Daniel is saying to us, I want you to see what God showed me about the meaning of history and the significance of events as they're seen, not from the human and historical point of view, but from the divine and the heavenly point of view. And so he takes us behind the scenes of of history in order to help us understand quite literally the ways of God in all the mysteries of of human experience and historical circumstance. And so the implication then is that it's important for us, for God's people to know and to be prepared for what they will have to face, not only near the end of all time, like we see in chapter seven, but for what will come along the way, which is what we see in chapter eight. Now, We're not going to read the chapter all in one go this morning. Um, Instead, I want to kind of give you a brief sense of of what happens in this chapter, and then we'll kind of break it into more manageable sections. So there's essentially two parts to the chapter. In the first half of the chapter, Daniel's given this pretty terrible vision. Uh, In the vision, there's a ram with these two misshapen horns that's just kind of wildly charging around, and then suddenly a shaggy goat with a single horn sort of just flies or hovers onto the scene and just destroys this ram. Uh, And then the single horn breaks uh, from the ram, breaks into four separate horns, and it raises up against heaven, and and the sanctuary is said to be overthrown, and there's destruction and, and suffering and darkness, and it's really dark and really confusing and a little strange. And then about halfway through the chapter, Daniel's trying to figure out what this vision means, and he can't. 
And so God sends an angel, Gabriel, to explain what the vision means, and he does sort of piece by piece, quite helpfully, sign by sign, uh, explaining what we've just seen. And then Daniel, at the end of the chapter, just sort of collapses. Now, there's two keys to understanding uh, a passage like this or working with a passage like this. The first is this. It's to use your eyes. This is not a talk. It's a vision. Indeed, the first couple of verses, Daniel says so many times, he emphasizes to his readers that, that he's seeing something. This is not a talk that he's giving. He's seeing something. It's a vision that he's describing. As he describes it, he keeps on using the word see. He says, I looked and I saw. This isn't about knowledge transfer so much as it is about the relaying of an experience. And so as we approach this chapter, we need to come at it with the understanding that it's not so much history, but it's a painting of a revelation. And we need to open our eyes so that we can experience and and see that picture. Now consider this. Why does Daniel include the vision at all? Like I've just told you that the vision is given in the first half and then it's explained. Why do we need the vision? Why not just jump to the interpretation? This is a question I've been thinking about. In fact, why why does the Bible include moments like this at all? Why not just tell us the information? Why speak to us in in metaphor and imagery and poetry? I mean, listen to Psalm 23. You've heard it before. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in in green pastures. That's, That's poetry. That's extended metaphor. God has never literally made me lie down. Uh, in a green pasture, and I don't think I would want him to. You see, metaphor does, does a run around, uh, around the logical mind and speaks directly to the heart. Right? David says that, that God has been a shepherd to him, and you know in your heart what, what it means to have felt like a sheep that needed someone to protect them and to show them the way to water and, and to provide for them. David could have said something like, God takes care of me. He makes me rest. He tells me what to do when I'm confused. But God knows that our hearts need something more tangible, both positively and, in the case of Daniel 8, negatively. We need to use the key of our sight, our imaginations, because the very thing that these visions are meant to do to Daniel and to us is to create an impression, an impression of power, dark power in this case. Now, the second key to unlocking this passage, of course, is that we use our minds, right? Use your eyes and use your minds. And of course, Daniel does this. You see in verse 15 and 16 that as he's watching the vision unfold, he's trying to understand what he's seeing, hoping that that God might unravel this mysterious significance of what, what this means. Now, with that in mind, as we, as we start to look at this vision, what we see is that God is really teaching Daniel several different lessons that reveal for us how God steadies his people to walk through the course of history. So the first lesson is this. God holds the reins of history. Chapter 7 gave us a view of all of history, while chapter 8 is, is much narrower. Daniel's vision came about 550 BC, some two years after chapter 7. He says, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, and in this vision, Daniel finds himself transported. We see in verse 2, I, he says, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. 
and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. It's almost like he just sort of finds himself there, right? Now look at verse 3. He says, I raised my eyes and saw. Again, notice the the emphasis on, on sight again. I saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. We learn a little later in verse 20 that this ram is a symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire. So keep that in mind. Daniel continues. He says, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, before this empire. There was And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. There's a sense in this this moment that this animal is out of control, that it's, it's terrorizing everything around it. He did as he pleased, as he wanted. And knowing that this ram is representative of this, this empire, we know that its movements really symbolize these vast military conquests. This empire did become strong and, and did do as it pleased for many years. That fourth verse is really representative of, of some 200 years of history, a time of, of conquest and, and destruction. And so Daniel watches on and he's, he's trying to figure out who is this ram? Like he knows it's supposed to mean something, but, but what does it mean? Look at verse five. He says, as I was considering... Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the earth without touching the ground. So it's almost like it's just sort of flying in or hovering in. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran to him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. You have this violent clash here, right? It's almost like something you might see in in an episode of Planet Earth or David Attenborough documentary, except it's much darker and much more terrifying, right? This goat is is otherworldly. Later in the chapter, in verse 21, the angel explains to Daniel, quite simply, that the goat is the king of Greece. So these two animals, the ram and the goat, are really empires clashing. Now, the king of Greece is is a figure you might be familiar with. Uh, His name was Alexander the Great. Uh, This man who who, who would raise an incredibly powerful army. Uh, he came to power in, in, in a great conflict with the Persians when it's said that with only 35,000 soldiers, he defeated an army of 100,000 men and 10,000 horsemen. Now, they say that he only lost 100 men in destroying a fifth of his enemy's army. He swept away his enemies and, and, and took power. One, one historical account from the era says that When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. He wept because there was nothing left to destroy. And this is the rather terrifying vision that Daniel's just been given, right? This is is bad news for the small nation of Israel. But in the midst of it, God tells him in this dream, in this vision, that 
even such a powerful figure as Alexander the Great weeping because there's nothing left to crush, this, this godlike figure would suddenly be broken down. Read in verse 8, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. At the height of its power, it's, he's cut off. The implication of, of the passive voice here is that God broke the horn. God was still in charge. And Alexander, at just 33 years old, suddenly and unexpectedly became sick and died, and his kingdom fell to pieces. What's the obvious message here? In, in giving Daniel this glimpse into the future, however confusing and difficult to understand, it shows Daniel and it shows us that God himself knew the path that history would take. One writer put it like this. He said, God was saying to his servant, even in such times as these, warfare, chaos, and destruction and fear, God has not let slip the reins of history. He knows the beginning from the end. He is still in in control despite appearances. We say that to one another when things fall apart, don't we? God's in control, but we are so slow to, to learn it for ourselves. God's in control, we say, and yet when we look at the world around us, our hearts just get themselves wrapped up in the things that are, are happening, especially this last year. We read the news, we talk to each other, and we forget what we know. We forget that history and all of life is in the grasp of his sovereign hand. Not even a sparrow falls from the sky without his knowing. The wind and the waves obey his voice. God is saying to Daniel and to us, remember who is ultimately in control. Which brings us to our second lesson that God is teaching Daniel. Don't trust appearances. Superpowers like Alexander the Great are not what they seem to be. Don't trust your eyes. Dale Ralph Davis illustrates this quite powerfully. He says, one can get a microcosmic taste of this in the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials in 1946. He says, after the executions of Nazi celebrities on October 16th, 14 bodies, including those of Goering, Ribbentrop, Rosenberg, and Kietel, were delivered to a Munich crematorium. That same evening, a container holding the amassed ashes was driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. After an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped and the ashes were poured into a muddy ditch. A year ago, these men could dominate and intimidate. That night, a drizzle washed them away. Living in in that sort of history calls for, for sober and durable discipleship, one that's not enamored with the way things appear. A discipleship that that understands that much action is unfolding behind the scenes of history. But we're we're visual creatures, aren't we? Right? We're embodied in the physical world, and so often it's the immediate that that holds our attention. And it's understandable. Now, from this point, Daniel sees four more things. Four things that on their appearance 
cause us to question the first lesson. Four things that, that suggest that God is not in control. The first thing he sees here, he, said, uh, he sees the, that the horn of this goat is replaced by four horns. Just as Alexander's Greek empire was divided and, and ruled by four generals. Look at verse 8. It says, instead of it, the horn, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So one, one tyrant is replaced by four. It seems, seems like God's not in control there. Second thing he sees is that from one of the four horns comes one small horn that, that grows in power and moves toward Israel just uh, as the tyrannical rule, uh, ruler and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did. Uh, and, and we'll talk more about him, him later. And then verse 9. Uh, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. That's Israel. The third thing he sees is that this one horn, Epiphanes, commits terrible atrocities against God's people. This horn sets himself up against, against God. And Daniel sees him taking away the offering and, and, and overthrowing the sanctuary, stopping the daily sacrifice and somehow throwing truth to the ground. Listen to verse 10 to 12. It, this horn, grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts uh, and some of the stars threw it to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper again we have to we have to consider this from from daniel's eyes right he has to be in shock over this he's he's in exile in babylon and he is seeing a future in which israel has returned to this land and is worshiping at god's rebuilt sanctuary and yet they're under attack Truth is, is thrown down and this dark power looks to be triumphant. We'll look at that in, in a little bit more detail in a moment. But, but by all appearances, these events point to a world that is spinning outside the control of a sovereign. These visions suggest that Daniel and his people serve a God that is criminally negligent toward the needs of his people. That he's... he's adrift, that he has fallen asleep at the wheel, or perhaps worse, that he's indifferent to their suffering. That's what it looks like on the surface, but then we remember that we shouldn't trust appearances. We remember that, that God holds the reins of history. It's why, it's why God gave Daniel this vision 200 years before all of this would happen, so that his beloved people, the people of his possession, would know that nothing happens that's beyond his control. I was reading this week in, in 2 Kings, and there's, there's a great story that, that illustrates this, this perfectly. The king of Syria has sent an army to, to capture the prophet Elisha. The city he's in is totally surrounded in the middle of the night, and Elisha's servant goes out early in the morning and finds, to, to his terror, that they're trapped. They're surrounded by this massive army, and he runs to Elisha, and he says, what, what are we going to do? And Elisha said to him, do not be afraid, 
For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Don't trust appearances. I mean, this is, this is crazy, right? Like, Elisha asked God in this moment then to, to blind this army, and God does. And then Elisha goes out to them, outside of the city, and tells them to follow him to the prophet they're looking for, who is actually him. And he leads this army back to the king of Israel. And then rather than destroying them, Elisha tells the king to make them a feast and send them on their way. So they feed this army that's come to destroy them. And then send them back to Syria with their sight. I love this. The passage ends with a simple sentence. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. They tried it and it didn't work. Right? Don't trust appearances. You know what that story really communicates about God? It's like, it's like a, when a parent sort of just like swoops in to, to rescue their kids. Right? This happens to all the time in our house. Right? There's some sort of crisis some immovable object that needs lifting, and then I show up and just sort of like move the object. Looked impossible to them, right? Here you have Elisha and his servant surrounded by an army, and God doesn't just like barely sort of sneak them out. He moves in a way that leaves no question of his absolute and, and total power. And so God giving this vision to Daniel is allowing him to peek behind the curtains of of history to see how things really are. Now, the fourth and final thing that Daniel sees here is that this description of the temple has, or the, the the desecration of the temple has a limit. It's six years or 2,300 days. Look at verse 13 says, then I heard a holy one speaking, and the other holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Don't trust appearances. The power, power that looks to be unstoppable and the destruction that seems to have no end actually has a limit. It will come to an end. God saying to Daniel, all of this is within my control and there's a set limit to what is going to happen. And that brings us to the third lesson that God gives Daniel and to us uh, about how to face life in troubled times. And it's this, we need to learn We need to learn to feel the dark reality of the powers of evil. We need to learn to feel the dark reality of the powers of evil. Here's what I mean by that. There's a real temptation to simply disengage. To look around at what's happening in our world and just check out emotionally. To go like, I know my soul's okay. I know where I'm going when I die. And just forget the rest to get caught up in our own little lives, our entertainment, our goals, our friendships and relationships, all all good things, and just shut out everything else. But there's something in this passage that calls us to really feel the weight of the brokenness of things. Now at this point, Daniel has 
seen the ram and the goat and all the destruction. And then the vision ends and we come to verse 15 and we read this. And as we read this, notice how Daniel responds to the vision. There's, there's a sense that even though he can't understand it, he feels it. Listen to verse 15. Daniel says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. The words just kind of make Daniel pass out. Like he just kind of falls over. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Gabriel, this angel, shows up and says, listen up, Daniel, I'm going to explain this vision. And the first thing you know, uh, you need to know is when it's happening. It's scheduled for the time of the end, not the end of all time, but the time of the end, which is, is referring to this period of time that, that Daniel and all of Israel was in, this exile, this time of judgment that Israel was experiencing. Essentially, Gabriel says this vision is going to happen and it's going to happen relatively soon. So listen up. And then he goes on to explain some of what we've already talked about, the ram and the goat. And then Gabriel gets to the heart of the vision, which concerns this period of time where where Israel will fall under the rule of this man that I mentioned, Epiphanes. This man who is arguably far less significant, historically speaking, than Alexander the Great. So why the focus on Epiphanes? Why the focus on this little horn? Well, it's because of what he does. We, re- we read verse 23, At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressor- transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destru- destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Why the focus on this less significant historical figure? Well, it's because of his destructive power is set toward the people of God, toward the saints of God. And there's no doubt that this prophecy was filled in in the man Epiphanes. Some 200 years after Daniel's vision, Epiphanes became king of Syria. He invaded Israel with the hope of, of making Jerusalem a Greek city. He, and in, in order to do that, he banned Sabbath observance and the study of the Torah. He built an altar to the Greek uh, gods in the temple, and he forced Jews to make sacrifices. He, he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar of the Lord. He cut up and threw down the holy scrolls in the temple. He robbed them. He pressured them to, to yield their faith. And, and all of this came to a head. In the book of, of Maccabees, which records this time period, we read that, that Epiphanes 
It says he ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy everyone they encountered and to butcher all who took refuge in their houses. It was a massacre of young and old, a slaughter of women and children. There were 80,000 victims in the course of three days. Now listen, listen to verse 25, knowing that it was written some 200 years earlier. Speaking of epiphanies, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human man. Again, the passive voice, right? He shall be broken. And this time, Gabriel clarifies it. He shall be broken by a supernatural power. Again, lesson one and two, right? God holds the reins of history and all is not what it seems. But the emphasis is clear. Listen, Daniel, this is coming for the people of God. And you need to know it and you need to feel it. Right? There's a reason Daniel's given a vision and not just an explanation. He needs to feel this. It's not enough that Daniel know that impossibly painful and terrifying times are coming. He needs to to see it. He needs to taste it. He needs to collapse to his knees like he does. And the people of Israel and we, we need to see his response. He saw it in this terrifying vision, the the darkness and the awfulness of evil. It was as, as though God were saying to him, now come up here and look at the spirit of evil from my point of view. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the Bible's earliest manifestations of what the New Testament calls the Antichrist, which is a word that might have some baggage for you, especially if you've been around the church for any length of time and have come across uh, some wild end times theology. But, But listen to this. John, in his first letter, he says, you have heard the Antichrist is coming, but there have been many Antichrists. Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name literally means the divine one or God manifest was one of those, one who seeks to usurp the place of God. And, and learning the dark reality of evil was necessary for Daniel in that it brought him to pray. And in the same way, it's, it's instructive for us because we're given such clear warnings in the New Testament The spirit of Antichrist continues to be in the world around us today. Sinclair Ferguson, writing about Daniel, outlines the characteristics of this force as we see it in Epiphanies and in this passage. Here, very quickly, are are these characteristics of of the one who would would set themselves in opposition to God. One, self-exaltation. Two, destruction of others. Three, cunning and deceitfulness. Four, someone who regards truth as secondary to success. Five, someone who is opposed to and seeks to destroy the ordinances of God. And six, someone who seeks to put themselves in the place of God and regards others as those who should come and pay homage to them. And what, 
What John tells us in the New Testament is that, yes, the the Antichrist is coming, but this force of evil is already made manifest in the world that we live in in a hundred thousand ways. And we need to feel it. We're in the same position as John. And God has said to Daniel, and by extension to us, you need to be aware of the reality of evil if you're going to stand in the day of trouble. Jesus put it like this in John 16, which, by the way, is a basic summation of the whole point of Daniel 8. So if you haven't heard anything yet, listen to this. John 16, Jesus says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That's all warning, right? Why is he giving us this warning? Verse four, but I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus' message is simple. I'm warning you now that suffering is coming so that when the time comes, you can remember that I told you that it was coming and thereby not fall away from the faith. And that's exactly what the message is here to Daniel. Right? Verse 26, the angel says to Daniel, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Seal up the vision, Daniel. Lock it up. Not to keep it a secret, but to keep it safe so that when the time comes, the people of God might not lose heart. That the people of God might know that God continues to hold the reins of history even in the darkest night, that they may be able to go and look that 200 years ago, God was preparing them for what they're facing. That the people of God might be reminded that all is not what it seems. And then the chapter ends. Verse 27, Daniel says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. You see, the people of God always live their lives in the context of world history. And life has to continue on. Daniel here, he's, he's sick over what he knows is coming. This is godly sorrow. And then he picks himself up and he goes about the work that he was called to do, even as he continues to be appalled and confused by the vision. And incidentally, I think this is where, where we need to gather uh, application from this text. Daniel here models for us the, the nature of what it is to be a follower of Christ in troubled times. And it's really three characteristics that we would do well to embrace. First, we're, we're shown here a heart that is soft to the suffering of others. Daniel is overcome for himself, yes, but mainly for the generations that would follow after him. His heart is not cold. He identifies with the people who would face the realities of this vision. He doesn't simply pronounce it from a distance, right? He enters in to the point of of feeling their pain in his own body. So a heart that is soft, to the suffering of others. Second, we're shown what it is to continue living in the midst of troubled times with partial understanding. 
right? Even after an explanation of the vision, it doesn't really make sense to Daniel, and he's left confused and even appalled by what he's seen. Nowhere in the scriptures are we told that we should expect to understand everything. In fact, Isaiah 55 says this. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, if, you, if you're not confused at times in your walk with the Lord, if, if everything about God and, and what he does in the world makes sense to you all the time, you might need to look again. Right? Augustine talked about this as a need for an unknowing or unlearning of what we think we know about God and how he works in the world. Augustine said there's Therefore, in us, a certain learned ignorance, so to speak, an ignorance which we learn from the Spirit of God who helps our infirmities. The last thing we see is that Daniel continues with what he's been called to do. He is busy about the king's business, even in exile. He was serving his king, yes, but ultimately he served the king, God himself. Daniel, knowing the coming judgment of God, living in, exiles, in exile, continues to serve. His labor is not meaningless. Martin Luther was once asked what he would do if he knew that the world would come to an end tomorrow. How do you, fa- how do you face the end? Uh, and his response was that he would plant a tree. Uh, we're called to do what we can in the time that we have in service of our king. Luther understood that the imminence of the end does not diminish the value of, of, of the work that, that God has called us to do. Now, we started with a question. How can you persist in faith through troubled times? The answer to that question comes as we see how Daniel 8 affirms God's sovereign hand over all of history and over the coming darkness. And from our vantage point in history, we can, we, we can look beyond the darkness of the days when Epiphanes desecrated the temple, and we can see an even greater act of rebellion, the height of rebellion, the greatest act of evil that, that in God's grace would become the source of our hope. How do, we, how do we face troubled times? Well, we look at the darkest time that ever was. We look at the cross and we see the sinfulness of man at its worst. When humanity, looking at, at the fullness of God in the face, rejected it. This moment of evil doing its worst and the result bringing about precisely what God had planned from the very beginning. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. The poet Charlotte Elliott, I read this morning, once prayed, O Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. May that be our prayer as we seek to live faithfully in this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that... um, According to the, the riches of your glory, you would give us the strength to, 
to comprehend with all the saints what, what is the, the breadth and length and height and depth of your love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Would you fill us with the fullness of God and give us faith to see beyond what our eyes can see and help us to trust in your sovereign hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.